Geolocation is the process of locating or estimating a location for something that exists in the real world. And in general, that thing you're trying to find in real life also exists somewhere else, either in the digital space, the cellular space, or as the source of something like a radar signal. There are many different ways to trace a signal, whatever type of signal it may be. When it comes to a mobile phone signal, for instance, there are many different breadcrumbs that people or software can follow back to the source. If your phone is connected to a mobile service, its location can be semi-accurately triangulated by checking which cell tower it last pinged, and then finding two or more other nearby cell towers to help narrow down the search radius. The most modern phones also have GPS units built into the device, and the sole purpose of such a unit is to help locate, with pinpoint accuracy, that device anywhere on the planet. It does this by checking in with satellites, which are positioned in orbit in such a way that at any given time, just about anywhere on the planet, your device will have a line of sight to at least four such satellites. And these satellites contain highly precise atomic clocks. By checking the difference in the time code embedded in the signal picked up by your device from each of these four different satellites, it can determine how far away each of them are to a very granular degree. This gives your device a GPS location, which then shows with great specificity where you are on the planet. You can also be tracked via less pinpoint mechanisms, like by determining which Wi-Fi network you're currently logged into, or by using the geographic metadata attached to a photo that you took and then posted on a social network. Most smartphone services actually use a combination of such sources to figure out where the phone you're using is currently located. The GPS coordinates will be combined with cell tower triangulation, which will be combined with data provided by any nearby Wi-Fi routers. And all of that will be cross-referenced with the address data from Google Maps to position you within a particular building or at a particular address. Maybe you'll be assigned a latitude-longitude number pair, or maybe assigned some other non-numerical designation as is the case with the mapping service What Three Words, which has divided up the planet into 57 trillion, three meter by three meter squares, each of which has its own three-word designation. Whatever the outcome, your device radiates plenty of information that can be used to roughly or very specifically assign you a real-world location. And that real-world location data can then be used for a variety of purposes, to help your Lyft driver find you to locate the nearest pizza restaurant, to trigger geofencing-related automation services, like if you tell your smart home to turn on the lights and adjust the thermostat when you are exactly one minute away from arriving home after a long day at work. The dual-pronged mobile internet and smartphone revolution changed a lot about how we interact with each other and the world. And geolocation services, being able to plot each and every one of us 
and all the stuff around us as well, to be able to plot everything and everyone on the map, to locate us in the real world, in real time, is arguably one of the fundamental technological innovations that made this revolution revolutionary. Of course, for every new innovation and whiz-bang cool new technology, there's also an equal and opposite new fear, new danger that we have to learn to worry about. In the case of geolocation, that new danger is the potential invasion of privacy that results from having these technologies activated, as they tend to be by default, and which they must be if we want to make full use of the range of modern applications and services that are available to us. It is a substantial trade-off, privacy for functionality, and it's a trade-off that many of us struggle with to varying degrees. What I want to talk about today is a recent instance of these technologies accidentally pulling back the veil on some very private information, and I want to entertain a thought experiment about what the world might look like if we were to decide that such risks are not just acceptable, but that less privacy and more always-on data sharing is actually something that we should push to its logical conclusion. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled Fitness Tracking App Strava Gives Away Location of Secret U.S. Army Bases. This is a story that was all over the news the week that I'm recording this episode, and honestly, it's a pretty good story, even without delving too deep into possible extrapolations about what it represents and what we might learn from it. There's this social network called Strava, which is part network like Facebook, but focused on athleticism and running and biking and kayaking and things of that nature. But it's also part software as a service, which in this case means you can upload your data from your phone or your fitness device of choice, your Fitbit, your Garmin, your step counter, your heartbeat monitor, or whatever else. And this software will do new things with that data. It'll help you set goals, it'll compare you to others, it'll generally crunch that data in all kinds of interesting ways. So Strava is a way of finding and connecting with local running groups, but it's also a way to take your running data and crunch it and display it and understand it, potentially in new ways, ways that your normal fitness application and your normal device will not allow you to do. What's more, it has a geolocation component. So you can show your running path of choice, upload some photos that you took on a particular run, and then share that information with others. You can also become a premium user and get additional utility, including a safety feature that allows you to live upload your location to the network. And then you can share that location and the live updating of it with up to three friends. So if you're out in the wilderness, you've got what amounts to a health contact keeping tabs on you. Or if you're running through a dangerous area, there are people who can see where you are just in case. Every little GPS 
ping is shared with the network, and as a consequence, shared with those people, live. So a single run has potentially thousands of individual GPS pings, each of which is one little data point, but those dots on the map are then strung together to create a fully realized run through the woods, through your neighborhood, etc. That's one type of information that this Strava network can crunch and analyze and share. So this network is all about utilizing this data in new and interesting ways, and one of the ways it decided to do so was to release a collection of data visualizations called heat maps. Basically, maps that have overlays of all of their users running and biking and kayaking paths. All of those little GPS blips on the map. So you can see where their network users are active and where the best paths are located on a particular mountain or within a particular city. The map that they released with this data in November of 2017 is pretty gorgeous. And you can zoom in really close to see super fine grain details with different colors and levels of opacity showing the varying degrees of use for these trails, which are not necessarily mapped on traditional map services like Google Maps or even on nature guides, but which become visible on this type of visualization due to that fitness tracker data that is now evident. All of those GPS blips strung together show where people are running and cycling and such which is a pretty compelling feature. And again, the map itself is just really cool looking. I'll link to the map and some articles that have zoomed in snapshots of particularly interesting locations on that map. But it's basically a black and gray map of the planet with over 3 trillion GPS ping locations displayed in varying shades of red, orange, yellow, and white based on how well trafficked a particular area might be. So you can glean a lot of information at a glance and you can see very quickly and clearly where the hotspots are and which areas largely lack this type of physical activity of the kind that's being tracked and uploaded to their services, at least. But as cool and interesting as it might be, this feature has created a stir within the military community. A military analyst named Nathan Rooser started to post portions of the heat map on Twitter, showing locations where, by all indications, there is nothing of note in the area at least on official maps. But because of the running tracker data, we can see that someone, quite possibly military personnel, have been running circuits in these areas where there's supposedly nothing interesting happening. Meaning, this heat map shows what might be secret military installations and the outlines and streets and paths and even hallways of those installations, along with visual information indicating, potentially, how many people might be present at these bases and which routes are their most popular to go walking and working out on. And all of that information is now posted openly on the internet for anyone to see. Like I said, this massive global heat map contains over 3 trillion latitude-longitude coordinates. That's a whole lot of data to weed through. And though most of it is 
innocuous, the fact that forward bases in Afghanistan can be clearly seen, along with Russian military positions, and yes, even what seems to be a bike path around Homey Airport, better known as Area 51, that's a big black eye for the world's military establishment. There's still a lot of searching and identifying and speculating going on, and it's unknown whether any truly secretive, sensitive, potentially harmful information will result from this lapse. But it's a pointed reminder that no matter how good your security procedures, consumer-grade technology moves fast, and it's almost impossible to maintain regulations that can keep up with that evolution. So what we have is a minor scandal predicated entirely on the accidental, sudden publicness of things that were meant to be kept private. We weren't supposed to know where some of these bases were located, and we weren't supposed to have any idea about their road and path layout, either. And now we do. And that is, ostensibly, a bad thing. But what if it wasn't? What if we built a world in which privacy wasn't such a huge deal? What if we shucked off the desire to keep things secret and instead opened up completely as governments, as societies, and as individuals? What might that look like? What might we gain? And what might we give up in the process? Especially in the smartphone and other technology-obsessed developed world, the majority of us are already putting a huge quantity of information about ourselves out into the ether at all times. Because the technologies, the products, the services that we use, they get better. They offer us more value when we do so. Why not formalize that concept and potentially benefit even more as a consequence? And why not push for the same in our politicians, in the folks running our social networks, in the cities in which we live, and the public services that we fund? Why not just go whole hog with this and see what happens? What's so special about privacy and secrecy, anyway? Well, for starters, there are several main and countless secondary benefits found in privacy both perceived and real privacy, because sometimes the sense of privacy is even more important than the reality, which is an important distinction in the world in which we live today. It could be argued, for starters, that our sense of personal identity is developed in the private spaces that are still found in society. We grow in the gaps of the surveillance grid that is built collaboratively by the security apparatus and by us and our devices and those of the people around us. Parts of us grow in public, in social settings, but other parts, the parts that process and experiment in ways that would not be as feasible or comfortable in public, in front of other people, those often require closed doors, or at the very least, unwatched spaces, unmonitored moments, Maybe real, maybe just privacy in our own minds. It requires that we're able to stop and think and wonder and process and then build upon what we learn, unveiling the new iteration of ourselves the next time we interact with the rest of the world. It's been argued that lacking private spaces, we would be less capable of distinguishing self from community and therefore recognizing what separates us as individuals from any other person growing up in the same area with similar cultural backgrounds, inherited values, and so on. 
There's also the argument that the maintenance of one's inner life, and perhaps one's private life, is a necessary condition of psychological autonomy and self-determination. Lacking a space in which to let go, to stop putting on airs, to loosen one's tie, and put up one's feet, it's difficult to know what behaviors we perform because it's socially correct by whichever standards we're aiming to live up to, and which are truly 100% us. Things we would do even if no one else was around, possibly judging us. There's been work done in this space by numerous psychologists and sociologists, but one common thread is that being able to control the boundary between self and other, and the other's access to one's physical and mental space, one's mind and body, seems to be a necessary component to being a fully realized individual, one with a sense of purpose, self-determination, and personal responsibility. There are arguments to be had about that particular definition, and there are obviously variations in this perception from one culture to the next, especially between cultures which historically celebrate the group over the individual and vice versa. But it's worth knowing that privacy is considered by many to be vital for personal development, even if the person in question chooses not to be alone very often, or would ever think of their privacy as something to be valued and protected. Having the option of privacy, and perhaps even just the privacy of one's own mind and body, seems to be sufficient. You could also argue that privacy is vital to the development of interpersonal intimacy. Sharing private moments with a significant other, with a friend or family member, can help form a different type of bond than you might be able to build as mere parts of a larger whole. Having inside jokes and shared experiences separate from the broader bulk of society seems to be important in refining such relationships. And then, of course, there is secrecy. The ability to conceal and muddle information about oneself for personal gain or to disadvantage an adversary. There's a fine line between privacy and secrecy, but in general, the term secrecy is used when privacy is maintained to gain leverage of some kind. And in a transactional economic system and within an adversarial legal system, it could be argued that secrecy is not only desirable, but necessary, lest everything else fall apart. Everything we've built, collapsing around our heads, due to our inability to cope with the consequences of unpolished truth, and more information, much of it inconvenient, than we know what to do with. These systems are predicated on some people knowing things, and others not knowing things, and those gaps in knowledge being important. This isn't to say we couldn't change these systems, along with a change in this reality, but we've already seen such secrecy fall unannounced within the existing system, and it is seldom pretty for those who assumed that that secrecy would remain intact. Whistleblowers and leakers, spies and journalists, there are many sources of such information these days, and it's remarkable how much damage can be done by something as simple as sharing information that someone, somewhere, assumed would remain unshared. Of course, again, all of this presupposes today's value systems and social structures, which relies, at least in part, on the hoarding and defending of information. 
On the personal level, a lack of privacy potentially allows you to be targeted, to be stalked, to be kidnapped or harassed. Organizationally, businesses might lose a substantial strategic advantage if their secret sauce becomes available to anyone who wants it. Governments may lose their military edge if their secret bases are unveiled and their weapons programs are made public. But again, this sense of unbalance resulting from a removal of secrecy, of privacy, is the consequence of our existing information in balance. Some rando on the internet can stalk you based on information that's posted on your Facebook profile, and you cannot necessarily stalk them back. That situation might be wildly different if society were to change and privacy were to become a thing of the past. Within that new circumstance, if you were to be stalked, you could stalk in return. If you were to be tracked, you would likewise be able to track. So anyone who could target you, could stalk you or find you, could also be seen, be tracked, be monitored. Their actions would be readily pick-apartable by anyone who cared to do so, just as yours would be. So crimes that would once have been easily committed due to privacy and secrecy and information imbalance would, theoretically at least, no longer be feasible. Those who did manage to get away with them would be punished and would be easy to find because of that lack of privacy. And to make this work, to make this scenario a reality, there would probably need to be cameras everywhere, tracking devices on everything, and anything that could be recorded and documented would be. And conceivably, at least, many of the concerns we have around privacy and secrecy today would be alleviated, at least to some degree, because everyone and everything would be tracked and surveilled and measured equally. Now, that may not, at first, seem like a very worthwhile trade-off. But if you look at some of the most prominent concerns in this space, you quickly come to realize that many of them, especially the ones that come to mind most immediately, are only really issues because of information imbalance. And in some cases, because of tradition, meaning we feel weird about certain breaches of privacy because there are things we do in private that no one else knows or that no one else knows for sure or knows the details of. Those are things we've been socially trained to be ashamed of, to be embarrassed about. So it's awkward to think about all of those things just being out there in the ether due to that particular tradition of embarrassment. But beyond that, most of our concerns in this space, I think you'll find, are predicated on the concern that we will be exposed while someone else or something else, some organization or whatnot, would not be. We would have the skeletons in our closet opened up to the air and that would put us at a disadvantage. So that imbalance, theoretically at least, is the real issue here. Now real quick, I want to stop and mention that I'm not saying that issues around privacy are not real issues. That things like doxing and online stalking and harassment and real-life stalking and harassment are not issues. They are very, very serious issues and should be treated as such. This is a thought experiment and hopefully an excuse to bend our minds to consider how things might be different if, well, essentially, everything about the modern world changed, at least in terms of how information is made available and how we deal with the stuff we currently keep secret today, for better or for worse. So that in mind, 
Let's go over a few of the arguments in favor of dropping our privacy desires and instead opening up completely, opting for a 100% transparent society where everything is tracked and watched and tagged and quantified. The first big benefit that comes to mind for me is that we would be far more capable of optimizing the hell out of just about everything. Science would move forward at a rapid clip due to all the data we'd be collecting about health and behavior and everything else just by default. Information would be shared with everyone all the time, and the relevant parties could soak up and utilize that data to discover more faster than ever before. We would experience substantial gains in the fields of seemingly mundane things, like the way our streets are laid out. There are already techniques today that make use of freshly fallen snow to see where drivers drive when the existing traffic infrastructure is concealed. Where do they turn? Where do they run up on the curb? Which portions of the road are underutilized, which could be reclaimed for pedestrians? This data is used to improve the roads in general and to make them more practical. Adding relevant, new information to the theoretical setups to which we're otherwise limited. In roads and everything else in society, we would suddenly have this deluge of new data, of new information, that we could then utilize to make these iterative improvements based on how all of these things are used, as opposed to how they theoretically should be used. And that same theory applies to the individual, not just the public space. Imagine having every aspect of your life tracked to the finest grain detail, and then having that information filtered through software that could give you actually helpful advice about things you want to improve, but also about things that you'd have no reason to currently know about, but could also be improving. Real health concerns, diseases and predispositions could be nipped in the bud early before they become a problem and you could be connected to resources you would not otherwise know are available. Taking that a step further, there could be professional or skill-related resources available as well, and connections could be made between you and anyone else on the planet based on which connections would be most beneficial for everyone involved. This could result in you getting a mentor who also needs an apprentice, or getting a job at a business that needs someone exactly like you with your exact background and skill set. You could be given the opportunity to acquire the skills and education that matches your potential and your passions. On a simpler level, you could be matched with music that you will love based on other music you've enjoyed. This is something that's already happening if you use streaming services like Spotify. You could conceivably, with everything in your life, have access to that same type of recommendation engine in the movies you watch, the art you experience, the food that you order. You could have a personal algorithm available at all times, always updating based on new information about you, your heart rate, your cortisol levels, your facial expression, your conscious input and feedback. And you could set it to order your food for you, to choose your music, to buy your clothes, and to pick out what you should wear in the morning. You could set this personal algorithm to be more adventurous choosing options that are on the fringe of what you might like, that are bigger gambles with potentially larger rewards, expanding your realm of experiences and the quality of future recommendations as a result. 
Or you could rein it in sometimes, have it play closer to familiar territory, with a higher success rate, but a lower chance of a seemingly random new culinary or artistic discovery as a trade-off. This is a very small extrapolation of what already exists within many of our personal devices. Our smartphones and smartwatches, our fitness trackers and music apps, our social networks, and restaurant review sites. Our technology is learning about us. And we are learning, in turn, how to utilize it to sort through the myriad options we encounter every day across every aspect of our lives. The technologies that win out in this space increasingly become dominant within their field. Those that fail to sort as well as their competitors that have inferior algorithms often sink to the bottom, buried by the sheer bulk of media and food options and clothing retailers that we have access to via our globe-spanning networks. These technologies, to function, require that we give up some of our privacy. It is necessary that they come to know us, our location, our preferences, something of our history. And many of the companies making these apps and other technologies are also in the background, buying up information about us from other sources as well. Our consumption and browser history, our demographic information, our relationship status, our favorite bands. Part of the argument in favor of a totally transparent society is that all we would really be doing is pushing this progression, this conveyor belt that we're already on, to its logical extreme. Rather than beating around the bush and pretending that we're not giving away a great deal about ourselves already, and pretending that we have privacy most of the time, when in fact the opposite is true. We could go all the way, opt for complete openness, and in doing so, we might be able to get more and better versions of what we already enjoy, while also, quite possibly, eliminating one of the major issues inherent in today's information-for-value economy. And that issue is the power imbalance that is created when one group of people have no privacy and another group does. Perhaps the easiest way to imagine the consequences of privacy and balance is to consider what might happen if one day all of your country's secret military bases were to become exposed simultaneously, while those of every other nation on the planet remained secret. This would be, perhaps, a temporary imbalance, and perhaps not even terrifically dangerous in most regions. Many of these bases, after all, are essentially open secrets. Technically secret, but only kinda sorta. Everyone generally knows where they are, even if the specifics might not be available. But all the same, secrecy provides safety in some situations. And secret military bases are generally secret for that very reason. Having those bases exposed, then, without the rest of the world suffering the same fate, would put your country's military at a disadvantage in that respect. The same is true if one group of people suddenly had all their dirty laundry aired, all of their secrets revealed, posted on the internet by all the services they use, so that anyone can see anything they like about anyone else. But another group of people are not targeted. So one group is made up of people who are now complete open books, while the other group is made up of people who are able to maintain their secrecy, who have private things about themselves that no one else knows. Can you imagine the imbalance that would result from this? 
Suddenly, anyone in that first group who wants to run for political office or run a public company would be at a significant disadvantage. Every keg stand, every stupid tweet, everything they've ever said or done, plus many things that they've only ever done in private, but which could be demonstrated through surveillance or data, it would be there to be used against them. That second group of people, however, would be largely immune to the same, even though they, on average, would have the same quantity and severity of weaknesses as anyone else. The same stupid things that they've done. It's just that those weaknesses, those stupid things, would not be on full public display. That imbalance gives them an advantage. But imagine how things could change if that imbalance was not part of the equation. Imagine if politicians wore every statement they'd ever made around their neck. Not literally, but if we had software tracking everything they ever said, every vote they ever cast, every dollar they ever accepted. And all of that information was always available, right there, whenever and wherever they started to make a new claim. Everything would be transparent. You could see what they really believe, what they really mean, what they've really done, and whether their behavior matches their words. You could see their lies, their truths. You could see where all the money came from, and in whose interest they're likely acting. Instant fact-checking. An always-on bullshit meter. It's difficult to imagine any contemporary politician functioning under such circumstances, but it would almost certainly lead to more honest claims and elections. Now imagine the same being true within everyday, non-political society. We would all know way more about each other than we do now, and could instantly learn far too much information about every stranger we pass on the street. But they could learn the same about us. And though our own flaws make us uncomfortable, I suspect looking around and recognizing similar, if different, flaws in everyone, in every single person on the planet, that might help us cope with our self-knowledge that it's all out there. Further, we'd probably be less likely to use another person's flaws against them when we are fully aware that our own scars are right out there in the open, making us just as vulnerable to the same sort of attack. I'm guessing it wouldn't take long for politics to change radically with such a system in place. We would actually probably require a new government system before long, as the people we elect today are largely stand-ins for concepts that could conceivably be voted upon and undertaken without the politicians themselves needing to be involved. We could focus instead on the platforms, the individual ideas, and working through which of these ideas would be optimal for more people, based on all that data we would have available, different interpretations and reworkings of that data. We would possibly be able to figure out what's actually best for most people, rather than what we believe is best for us based on candidate branding, political party salesmanship, blind patriotism, and willful ignorance, a sharp pivot from how we do politics today. And we'd probably want to relatively quickly adjust aspects of our general social structure to make room for this new transparent reality. How would law and legal justice change when all the information is available to everyone involved? How would the economy change if we were all suddenly more aware of what we actually need rather than being kept ignorant, not just about the world, but in some ways about ourselves, lacking all the data we need to make optimal decisions? Would marketing disappear? Would consumerism? Would the economics of more, more, more growth, growth, growth 
Expansion for the sake of expansion be replaced by something more custom-fitted, something more data-driven and optimized. Our economics, our politics, our relationships and habits and preferences and exposure to novelty and day-to-day -day routines, it could all be tracked and quantified and nudged toward optimization. If we really invested ourselves in this, and that means all of humanity, we could relatively quickly see immense gains in pretty much everything we consider to be important, while also potentially discovering some new things that we don't currently value but probably should, things we could learn to prioritize. And that, through some lenses at least, all sounds pretty good. We could alleviate a lot of the personal, interpersonal, and societal ills that we suffer from today if we leaned hard enough into this sort of system if we really committed to the completely open, completely optimized world that could exist if we wanted it to. We might lose some of the things we value today, but we might also find that such things aren't so important if the newfound benefits are valuable enough. Those expectations could shift and new traditions could be developed. But as kumbaya and tech-utopian lovely as that could potentially be, this is all assuming we could figure out solutions to the existing problems with our tracking and optimizing technologies, which, as I've discussed in past episodes, are serious things, and finding easy solutions to them is not something I think we can assume. But, assuming that, because again, thought experiment, how on earth would all of this actually happen? How would we shift from where we are today to where we would need to be to universally flip our privacy expectations and practices? Why would those in power under today's existing system give up that power? And that's assuming that everyone else already agrees that, hey, we're giving up most of our privacy already, so we might as well go all in. If the majority of people decide to make that change, what would compel those final few higher-ups, those in charge and running things, to open up in the same way that everyone else is opening up? We already have some empirical data on this facet of the subject already, believe it or not. Data about what happens when tracking tools become available and could conceivably provide better experiences for a large number of people if we all just decided to let go of that silly privacy thing. And the shape that that data takes is Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, telling everyone else to stop worrying about this privacy nonsense, to let go and allow him and his software to optimize our interactions, while he, personally, increasingly walls off his life from the rest of the world. Zuckerberg has purchased four houses that were neighboring his own main house, at a cost of $30 million, just so he could tear them down and create a barrier between himself and his family and the rest of the world. He bought 700 acres in Hawaii and then built a six-foot wall around it and tried to sue nearby locals to get them to leave, dropping the lawsuit only after it became public and the backlash against the lawsuits became a PR issue for Facebook. And he did all this so that he wouldn't be disturbed and could not be seen by anyone else. He won't let his own children use social media and the devices through which social media is accessed. The very products he is insisting the rest of us should just get over ourselves and use without worries, he is keeping himself and his family from using them. He's maintaining and even reinforcing his own secrecy, his own privacy, 
while telling the world that we need to give up both to him and his company. And it's not just Zuckerberg demonstrating that he does not personally trust these tools. Many of the founders and original investors of Facebook and other networks are doing the same. In a piece on CBS News recently entitled, Facebook Executive Admits Social Media Platform May Be Hurting Democracy, the head of the company's civic engagement wing says that there's real evidence that Facebook has been used repeatedly to undermine democratic social values. A piece in Inc. magazine entitled, Facebook's Founding President Says Facebook is Hurting Our Brains, features Sean Parker, the guy played by Justin Timberlake in that Facebook movie that you probably saw. And he's quoted as saying, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. A piece in The Independent quotes the former vice president of user growth for Facebook as saying that he feels, quote, tremendous guilt about Facebook and that he has banned his children from using it. Further, he believes that it is, quote, destroying society and makes users feel, quote, vacant and empty. So, not the most ringing of endorsements from these people, who more than most of us have been and are in the know about what this network is about and what it's capable of, what available research is saying about it. For his part, Mark Zuckerberg now seems to be aiming for a pivot, and while he's acknowledging there have been problems, and are still problems with the network, his solution, for the moment at least, seems to be leveraging Facebook to solve the problem of Facebook. So don't stop using it, all you people who are not me and my family, he seems to be saying. I know you're worried, but just chill. I'm working on it. It'll be fine. We will tweak the algorithms. Which makes sense for a CEO of a publicly traded company to say, to be fair. He's not going to say Facebook is bad and wrong and we shouldn't use it anymore. That could actually be illegal, as he has a fiduciary duty to his shareholders, but it's also presumably not what he believes. It's always difficult to read this type of public figure because, of course, they are protected by layers of privacy and security. And what makes it out into public is a highly groomed, highly edited, highly legally appropriate and branded version of who that person actually is and what they actually believe, which is a problem that could conceivably be solved by the elimination of expectations of privacy. But that's something, again, that would be unlikely to happen with entities like Facebook and people like Zuckerberg holding the reins. Meaning, there could quite possibly be benefits to such systems, but the examples we have today all operate in ways that support and reinforce the current status quo. And to actually benefit from these things in a radical way would mean upending that status quo. It would mean laying bare the people in charge just as much as the people not in charge. And that presumably would be untenable for this type of person. Zuckerberg is not going to let us all know as much about him and his family as he knows about us and ours. Politicians are not going to allow themselves to be surveilled in the same way that they are working hard to ensure that the rest of us are surveilled. And those are the people, today at least, whose participation would be required if we wanted to make such a change. They hold those reins of power, and they obviously have very little interest in giving up their own personal autonomy and privacy. 
They have a vested interest in keeping the advantage that they have gained through that information and balance that they have instigated and reinforced. So in my mind, this is an issue that, like so many issues I speak about on this show, can be traced back and back and back to something that's much bigger than the original perceived problem or opportunity. It's not just about technology or social norms, it's about the systems of power we have built and the way we organize and manage those systems. It's about things like marketing and late-stage capitalism and liberal democracy and corporate personhood. It's about the role information imbalances play in the way that we fight, the way that we negotiate, the way that we exchange value, and the way that we socialize. Looping back around to that original article about runners and the app that was tracking them and the national security problems that have arisen as a result, it's important to remember a few things. First, any time you click to indicate that you agree with a terms of service message, be it on an app or a social network or anything else, you are signing away certain rights to privacy, maybe, to legal solutions if things go wrong, almost certainly. But those agreements are never for you. They are always for the company issuing them. There's not much to be done about this, but to be aware, because even if you care about such things, there is seldom a good way to actually understand, within a reasonable time frame, what it is specifically you're agreeing to. And there are not always less legalistically abusive alternatives to a product or service that you would like to use. So we are, in essence, constantly, daily, subordinating ourselves to these entities that are issuing these agreements, giving them the upper hand and giving up our privacy and information as part of that subordination, which in turn increases the information imbalance that already exists. Second, it's pretty clear that any move toward increased transparency would need to be a universal, worldwide thing for it to be effective. If all of one country's military bases are out there in the open, but another country is free to continue to hide stuff of that nature, it creates an untenable, asymmetric situation. So it's everyone or no one, and everyone is kind of a tall order for anything. And third, I'm guessing we'll be seeing a lot more breaches of this type, both accidental and intentional hack-related breaches in the near future. We've already seen some serious ones. There were soldiers in Afghanistan, for instance, playing Pokemon Go while on duty in 2016, and soldiers had to be reminded not to check in to their barracks on Foursquare in 2012. The digital badges and mayorships they were earning, they had to be reminded, were not worth the potentially valuable information they were giving away to enemy combatants. A lot of the functionality, the features available via our technology today, could lead us to better outcomes down the line. But under the existing status quo, the way things operate today, they're more likely to cause little more than trouble in the short term. Exciting and sometimes interesting new kinds of trouble in some cases, but trouble nonetheless. <music> The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Moon and the Other by John Kessel. I don't want to give away too many specifics here because that would give away too much about the plot, I think, but the broad outline 
is that the moon is settled by something like a dozen different large settlements. And of these settlements, some of them are very unusual cultures. There is a strict personal sovereignty, libertarian-based city. There is an ice mining economic powerhouse that also happens to run according to traditional Muslim values. And then there is a city called the Society of Cousins, which is a matriarchal society and which has created a very unique governing system that on its surface seems to be vaguely utopic, at least for certain members of society. But the deeper you dig, the more you start to see the gray areas within that particular type of matriarchal system as well. And the conflict of the book is presented from a couple different characters who operate within different cities, but it centers around a growing conflict between some of the more traditional patriarchal cities up on the moon and this Society of Cousins matriarchal system. This is a well-written book that does a really good job of covering those aforementioned gray areas and showing how even incredibly good ideas, politically and technologically, can actually have a whole lot of significant flaws just underneath the surface. Again, the title is The Moon and the Other, and that is a book written by John Kessel. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xlifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.